Welcome to Diplomacy and Discourse Podcast. I'm your host, AR. In this podcast, we'll explore the many disciplines across the globe. Mainly, the subject of politics is discussed. However, this isn't a show about current trends, like what's happening at the White House, for instance. Instead, we will discuss government institutions, power struggles, geopolitics, actors in both the state and non-state sectors, technology, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, economics, and many other topics. So in this episode, we will explore how the education can be a powerful tool to create a culture of peace. We will discuss how education can promote tolerance, understanding, and respect for human rights. We will also examine how education can be used to encourage dialogue and collaboration between nations and people of different backgrounds. Finally, we will discuss how education can empower individuals to create a positive change in their communities. It will be an exaggeration to say that ignorance causes conflict. Conflict is caused by many things. But ignorance can be a contributing factor when conflict arises. So when you have a solution to a conflict, education is one of the most effective elements in peace building. Education helps create an environment of understanding and empathy, which can effectively resolve conflicts. It also helps to empower people to make informed decisions and to think critically about their choices. It also allows people to gain access to resources and tools that can help them to resolve conflicts peacefully. This is why the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal, SGG, number four, quality education is one of, if not the most important SGG. Education provides knowledge and skills, which are the building blocks of any prosperous society. It enables critical thinking, which helps people to identify and address the root causes of conflict. It also encourages people to respect the rights and beliefs of others and to engage in dialogue to reach mutually beneficial solutions. Education also fosters creativity and innovation, which can be used to create lasting and sustainable solutions to conflicts. In essence, education would lead to tolerance, understanding, poverty eradication, gender equality, good governance, and social equity. In 2003, U.S. Ambassador L. Paul Bremer failed his mission to Iraq. He was not able to effectively communicate with the Iraqi people due to a lack of cultural and linguistic understanding. He was unable to gain the trust of the Iraqi people and ultimately failed to broker any meaningful peace agreements. This incident demonstrates the importance of education in resolving conflicts, as it can help to bridge cultural gaps and provide an understanding of different perspectives. Without a solid understanding of the local cultures and language, Bremer could not gain the trust of the Iraqi people, and his mission ultimately failed. This highlights the importance of education and peacebuilding as it can empower people to engage in dialogue and reach mutually beneficial solutions. Education is a vital tool for re reconciliation, as it can assist people's understandings of the root causes of conflicts. It can also provide the knowledge and skills to build bridges between divided communities. Education can create empathy and accountability among opposing parties, teaching them to recognize each other's perspectives and work towards a peaceful resolution. Education can also foster respect for different cultures and beliefs and equip people with the skills to work together to find mutually beneficial solutions to conflicts. Education can help build a more peaceful, just, and inclusive society. When speaking about reconciliation, Nelson Mandela taught blacks and whites to view life differently, for example. 
Nelson Mandela was a leader who helped South Africa transition from apartheid to a multiracial democratic nation. He helped build bridges between different communities and helped foster an understanding of each other's differences. His efforts to promote education as a means of peace building provided a practical framework for people to learn how to work together and view life differently. He showed them that forgiveness was essential to healing the nation's wounds. He also showed them that peace and unity could be achieved through dialogue and understanding. His legacy will live on as a reminder of the power of reconciliation. In the broader sense, education is essential for developing any peace process. Education helps to break down cultural and societal prejudices, which can be a significant barrier to peace. It also encourages critical thinking and can be used to promote empathy, understanding, and respect for different cultures and perspectives. Education can be used to teach the skills needed to peacefully resolve disputes and build healthy relationships. There are quite a few programs and ideas on how to combat this so-called disease and ignorance around the world. What could be lacking are resources. Education is an essential tool for understanding the underlying causes of conflict and helping to bridge divides between different communities. It can cultivate empathy and understanding between opposing sides while fostering respect for other cultures and beliefs. By equipping people with the skills to work together and find mutually beneficial solutions to conflicts, education can be a powerful tool for building a more peaceful, just, and inclusive society. Nelson Mandela's legacy serves as an example of how education can be used to promote peace and unity as he helps South Africa transition from an apartheid to a multiracial democracy through dialogue and understanding. Unfortunately, many poor countries and communities lack the resources to marshal and fund such programs. Without these resources, it is difficult to reach as many people as possible and truly create the impact needed to promote understanding and peace. Those resources could be available if the old way of thinking were altered. In the aftermath of the Cold War, there was a general belief that various resources were available for the development of the world. It was unfortunate, however, that this did not turn out to be the case. What can be done to resolve these insufficiencies is up for debate. In my opinion, the solution to this issue is to focus on the long term rather than the short term. We must invest in education over the long term with a focus on creating sustainable, long-lasting programs that can provide access to quality education for everyone, regardless of their financial status. Additionally, it is important to ensure that these initiatives are supported by governments, philanthropic organizations, and other entities that can provide the necessary resources to ensure these programs succeed. In any case, the ideas, knowledge, and tools are there if they are accepted and paid for. With the world being open the way it is, traveling from one end of the world to the other, there must be the inevitability of preparation for accepting any differences. It is important to be respectful of different cultures, religions, and beliefs. This means learning about different customs and languages and trying new foods. It also means being open-minded and tolerant and not being judgmental. Typically, that difference exists as a direct neighbor. When you live in a diverse community, it is important to be aware of how your actions can affect those around you. This includes being conscious of the language you use, the clothes you wear, and the traditions you observe. Ultimately, being respectful of different cultures is about learning to be accepting of those who are different than you, and learning to appreciate the diversity that exists in each culture. Globally, 
What needs to be achieved is not only education for boys and girls to read and write, but also educating them to be model citizens. This means teaching them the values of respect, understanding, and collaboration so that they can work together to build a better world. It also means understanding the cultural differences that exist and trying to bridge the gap between cultures to create a more tolerant and accepting society. In other words, the idea that there is one civilization with many cultures must be translated into reality in the kind of relationship we will have. What would make a better life and promote a better future is the ability to understand each other through education. Johan Galtung was a Norwegian sociologist and peace researcher known for his theory of peace. He proposed that peace can be achieved through four components. Positive peace, which is the absence of direct and structural violence. Negative peace, which is the absence of fear of violence. Creative peace, which is the presence of a positive peace culture that enables constructive conflict resolution. And structural peace, which is an institutional framework that supports peaceful relationships between states and societies. Galtung argued that peace is not just the absence of violence, but rather a more holistic concept that involves all aspects of society. He believed that by focusing on the four components of peace, we can create a lasting and meaningful peace. All of these components of peace are interconnected and necessary for positive peace to be achieved. Positive peace requires not only the absence of direct and structural violence, but also the presence of a culture that encourages constructive conflict resolution and an institutional framework that supports peaceful relationships. Galtung identified four visions of peace essential to achieving positive peace, which is justice, equity, solidarity, and democracy. Justice is the idea that all individuals have the right to fair and equitable treatment, while equity is the idea of equal access to resources and opportunities. Solidarity is the idea of working together and supporting each other, while democracy is the idea of everyone having an equal voice in decision-making. Together, these four visions of peace create a society free from violence and injustice and can achieve lasting and meaningful peace. Achieving sustainable peace and ending conflicts can be difficult due to various factors. These include a need for more understanding of the root causes of conflict. They also need more cooperation between parties involved in the conflict and entrenched ideologies that impede progress towards peace. Additionally, economic and political interests can often prevent peace from being reached, as parties may not be willing to compromise or make the necessary sacrifices. Finally, the lack of resources available to those in conflict-affected areas can make it difficult to achieve sustainable peace and end conflicts. Building harmony between conflicting parties requires understanding and respect for each other's perspectives. Open dialogue and discussion can help parties understand how their actions impact each other. Additionally, it is essential to recognize and address the underlying root causes of the conflict, such as power imbalances, economic disparities, and social injustices. Conflict resolution techniques such as mediation can also help parties reach a consensus. Finally, creating a sense of equitable environment for all parties to engage in dialogue is essential for building harmony and lasting peace. The question is, can education contribute to peace? The answer is yes. Education creates understanding and empathy among people of different backgrounds, beliefs, and cultures. It can also provide the skills and knowledge necessary for conflict resolution and peace building. Education can also serve as a platform for dialogue and open communication. This can build bridges between differences and create a sense of solidarity and respect. 
Furthermore, education can help raise awarenesses of the root causes of the conflict and empower people to find peaceful resolutions to their differences. Thus, education can be a powerful tool for sustainable peace. The basic understanding is rather straightforward. Violence is an unresolved conflict. Unresolved conflict means that there is an incompatibility of goals, including means that still need to be resolved, superseded, transformed, or transcended. That conflict can be directly between actors with conscious goals or structural between parties with their interests. In other words, if you don't like violence, solve the conflict. One may, of course, try to eliminate a violent party, removing the main actor and thereby dissolving it. But removing the head of the party or faction won't work since there will always be others to take that position, and therefore conflict will persist. So what should we do about that? In terms of mediation, there are a variety of ways to achieve it. An example will be to show specific attitudes, behaviors, and contradictions. This can be done through dialogues, negotiation, and by demonstrating a willingness to listen and compromise. Lastly, a mediator must be impartial and consider both sides of the conflict to arrive at a satisfactory solution. The meta-conflict is empathy and acceptability, and behavior is also part of the meta-conflict. Behavior that does not demonstrate violence. Additionally, contradiction can be seen by identifying the genesis of the conflict since opposing sides may have different stories as to how the conflict started, thus pointing out the contradictions and then devising a powerful, sustainable approach to resolving the conflict. It is important that the mediator can empathize with each party and understand the perspectives of each side to arrive at a mutually acceptable solution. The mediator must also be aware of any underlying behavior that could potentially lead to more conflict, as well as any contradictions that could arise due to the origin of the conflict. By doing this, the mediator can create a powerful and lasting solution. The purpose of these methods is actually not to bring the parties together around a table. Instead, the mediator must use their knowledge of the situation to determine the best approach to resolving the conflict while considering all parties involved. This requires an understanding of the history of the conflict, the current state of the relationship, and the goals each party is trying to achieve. It is neither a negotiation nor a compromise. The mediator's role is to facilitate communication between the parties, helping them to understand each other's needs and interests in order to reach an agreement that satisfies all parties involved. The mediator is impartial and encourages all parties to participate in the process. That approach is acceptable for light, simple conflicts, but the methods above are directed towards a possible one-on-one -on -one meeting with a skilled mediator, one party at a time. As a result of reading works by Galtung, it is best to avoid bringing two parties together and making them converse for too long. Galtung believed that people's unconscious biases and emotions could escalate the conflict rather than a resolution. He argued that a one-on-one -on -one approach where the mediator interacts with each party separately allows for more control of the conversation and better management of the emotions involved. Galtung argued that each party's individual emotions and biases can be explored and addressed more effectively in a private setting. He believed this would help to prevent further escalation of the conflict and lead to a better outcome. Additionally, he argued that the mediator can more easily bring the parties to a mutual understanding when they are not in the same room. This can prevent the parties from feeling overwhelmed when negotiating a resolution. 
ensure that they have a free flow of conversation without the other party listening in, avoid playing theater by having them suggest solutions without the other party objecting, that's not what you said yesterday. According to Galtung, a mediator's rule for one-on-one dialogue is that every sentence ends with a question mark. This allows the two parties to answer openly, giving the perception that you are interested and want to know their side and what they stand for. This then allows for a focused conversation that encourages open dialogue and helps to ensure that both parties are heard. It also prevents the discussion from becoming heated or one-sided, as the mediator can ensure both parties are considered and respected. Mediation is essential for conflict resolution, as it provides an impartial third party to facilitate the conversation. This helps to ensure that both parties are heard and respected and can help to prevent the conversation from escalating to a point where it becomes too heated to be productive. Oftentimes, failed negotiations involve sentences that end with exclamation marks. Essentially, it becomes a shouting match, implying that the war is continued by verbal means. This is not a debate. The intention should not be to win an argument, because in a debate, the goal is to corner your opponent and have them strangle themselves with contradictions to win. This is not the right approach, according to Galtung. Searching and asking questions are the right way to do it. Mediation dialogues have three stages, mapping, legitimizing, and bridging. An important part of mapping is identifying each party's goals and identifying their objectives. It is important to make all parties feel comfortable before assessing whether you need to meet them. Their empathy will be satisfied by having a listener who understands their situation. There is a difference between empathy and sympathy, so it is imperative to make that distinction. Moreover, it is always surprising how many parties are involved in mapping. Unlike what you expected, the goals will be much more complicated. Legitimizing the conflict is the second step after after mapping. It is important to examine the objectives in order to determine whether they are legitimate. What distinguishes valid from invalid? There are three criteria to consider. Firstly, there is law, which is rather flimsy and not very good. The law can be difficult to interpret and apply to specific situations, making it difficult to use as a criterion for determining legitimacy in a mediation dialogue. Additionally, laws can be outdated or not comprehensive enough to apply to specific conflicts, making them unreliable as a source of legitimacy. Lastly, laws can be subjective and open to interpretation, which can lead to difficulty in reaching a consensus on the legitimacy of a conflict. Because it usually expresses upper-class interests, it is also not a very good criterion. Laws often reflect the interests of the upper-class because they have the power to influence the lawmaking processes. They have the resources to lobby for laws that advance their interests and can influence the interpretation and application of the law to their advantage. Therefore, laws often reflect the interests of the powerful, which can be detrimental to those without the same power and resources. However, this isn't always the case. A deep conflict can only be resolved by changing the status quo which is a law-amending process or the process of creating a new law. Changing the status quo requires parties to be willing to compromise and make concessions that may be seen as unfavorable. This can be difficult to achieve, as each party may be reluctant to accept a solution that does not benefit them in the way they desire. 
Furthermore, the status quo-oriented process is often slow and time-consuming, as parties may be reluctant to make any changes that they do not deem necessary. This can lead to prolonged negotiations and difficulty in reaching an agreement that all parties are satisfied with. Second, human rights are somewhat vague and not institutionalized, but they cover many issues. Human rights are often seen as broad and subjective, as they are based on a moral consensus rather than laws. This can lead to difficulty determining what constitutes a violation of human rights, as parties may have differing views on what is considered a violation. Additionally, human rights are not institutionalized, meaning there is no official legal authority to enforce them. This can make it difficult to ensure that human rights are respected and protected, as there is no entity with the power to enforce them. Despite this, human rights cover a wide range of issues, such as gender equality, freedom of speech, and the right to a fair trial, making them a vital concept to consider in any mediation dialogue. Well, what about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the United Nations General Assembly proclaimed in December 1948. It promulgates that all fundamental human rights must be protected. However, it is only a declaration and not an international law. The main difference between a declaration and international law is that a declaration is a statement of principles, while international law is legally binding. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is not international law because it is not legally binding and has no legal authority to enforce it. Therefore, it can't be used as a basis for legal action. It was the 16th of December, 1966, when international law came into existence, with the conventions, and the first of these is the Convention on Civil and Political Rights. The first convention had much to do with direct conflict, repression, and imposing a different culture. On December 16, 1966, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR. This covenant is the first international law that came into existence and is legally binding under international law. The ICCPR grants a wide range of civil and political rights, such as the right to life, the right to freedom of expression, the right to a fair trial, the right to seek asylum, and the prohibition of torture and cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment. The ICCPR also provides for the right to freedom of religion, the right to marry and form a family, the right to privacy, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. Equally important is the second convention, which was also adopted on December 16, 1966, which deals with economic and social rights. The United States has ratified the first, but not the second. This means that the United States is not legally bound to uphold these economic and social rights, which include the right to work, the right to adequate housing, the right to education, and the right to participate in cultural life. Both are necessary. Japan, Taiwan, and China have adopted an East Asian approach. Even South Korea has even enacted on it. The East Asian approach is a system of human rights that focuses on economic and social rights instead of just civil and political rights. This approach emphasizes the importance of economic and social rights, such as the right to work, the right to adequate housing, the right to education, and the right to participate in cultural life. The priority is economic and social rights. 
followed by civil and political rights. This is because economic and social rights are essential for individuals to exercise their civil and political rights fully. Access to adequate housing, education, and job opportunities is necessary for individuals to meaningfully exercise and enjoy their other rights, such as the right to free speech and the right to vote. Consequently, securing economic and social rights is necessary to ensure that civil and political rights can be fully realized. It is not my intention to state that I agree or disagree with any of the points raised. Rather, I am simply stating what I have read and how this has all been handled. However, it is imperative to lift people up from misery. You can use the two conventions of 1966, not just one, as a guide to human rights. But there is something deeper than human rights, and that is fundamental needs. Human rights are inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, gender, religion, or any other status. They are codified in international treaties and are protected by law. On the other hand, fundamental needs are not codified or institutionalized in any of the same ways as human rights are. They are more controversial and not as widely accepted. Fundamental needs are the basic human requirements for the physical and mental well-being of people, such as shelter, food, and healthcare. Unlike human rights, fundamental needs are not legally binding and are not enshrined in international agreements, making them harder to enforce. From extensive empirical research, Galtung identified core values, survival, somatic well-being, freedom, mind, and spiritual identity. So, the human being is both mind and spirit, and these four basic needs apply to all. Let's now say that we use all three to answer the question of legitimization. An element of law, human rights, and basic human needs. By listening to the parties, kicking out some of their goals, for instance, if a party has an excessive desire for pipelines to be run through Afghanistan, and a base to prepare for a coming war with China, that will be called illegitimate. Then, the other party should be asked to analyze the conflict, if any, and see how it can be resolved. That is an example. This is a way of finding a middle ground between the two parties that both sides will accept. This is a form of conflict resolution through mediation. It is important to note that the process must be fair and impartial in order to be effective and the people come first. One of the major issues facing Palestinian children's ability to access education in the West Bank is the assault that impairs Palestinians' access to education. Harassments, threats, and the use of force against students and educational staff by Israeli forces are all the problems in the area. In addition, Israeli settlers stormed schools and stoned school buses. This has led to disruptions in schooling, which students often skip classes, leaving early or not attending school at all. The ongoing violence and disruption of education has had severe psychological effects on Palestinian children, including fear, anxiety, and depression, which impede their ability to learn and thrive. This has also had a detrimental effect on the educational progress of Palestinian students, resulting in lower grades and poor academic performance. In addition, the disruption of education has had a long-term economic impact as it affects the overall development of the Palestinian economy. The problem is compounded by land appropriation that severely affects educational property or facilities due to demolitions or stop work orders. This means that schools cannot access the resources they need to provide quality education. 
as they are either denied access to the land or must move to another location. This disrupts the learning process and makes it harder for students to succeed. These issues create a challenging learning environment and make it difficult for children to get the education they deserve. As a result, many children are unable to get the education they need and are unable to reach their full potential. This can profoundly affect their future and lead to a cycle of poverty and inequality. To alleviate the assault that impairs Palestinians' abilities to access education, it is essential to maintain the commitments of the treaties and international law. This includes international humanitarian law rules pertinent to hostile occupation. This is because international humanitarian law provides a framework that states that the occupying forces have a responsibility to make sure that the basic needs of the displaced population are met, including providing access to education. Further, treaties and international law offer a legal basis to hold occupying forces accountable for human rights violations. This is especially important for ensuring that the children are not denied their right to education and can access quality education. It is also essential for children to have access to education to ensure their mental and physical development is not hindered by war or conflict. It is also essential to maintain human rights law binding obligations and not attack education. This is necessary to maintain the status quo. The status quo in this context refers to the existing situation in the occupied West Bank territory, the loss of land, the spread of settlements, and Palestinians gaining access to education. This includes harassments, threats, and the use of force against students and educational staff by Israeli troops. It also includes Israeli settlers storming schools and land appropriation that affects educational property. These conditions create a challenging learning environment that makes it difficult for Palestinian children to access education. Additionally, it is essential to create methods that distinguish between conflict and law enforcement and guarantee that forces tasked with a mixed mandate are permitted to function in full respect of the legal framework pertinent to the operation in question, be it a law enforcement operation or the conduct of hostilities. This is important because, in such situations, forces are often put in a difficult position to balance two sets of rules and regulations, which can be difficult to do without proper guidance. Establishing a clear set of parameters and rules for such operations can help ensure that forces can successfully carry out their mission safely and legally. These parameters can also help ensure that civilians are kept safe during operations and that the rights of all parties involved are respected and protected. This can help build trust between the forces and the civilian populations they operate in. Universal educational improvements are also needed to alleviate the assault that impairs Palestinians' abilities to access education. This could include increasing school system funding, providing teachers with better resources, and creating programs to help children catch up on miseducation. They may also involve providing incentives for teachers to stay in the Palestinian territories and improving the infrastructure of the educational system. Additionally, academic reforms should be implemented to ensure that Palestinians receive an education that equips them with the necessary skills to succeed in life. It is also imperative to establish accessible learning environments that are safe and secure for all children. This includes providing resources to protect children from harassment and other forms of violence. 
another key factor in alleviating the assault that impairs Palestinians' ability to access their education is providing access to high-quality educational resources. This includes providing access to books, technology, and other materials necessary for learning. Finally, it is essential to create a culture of respect for education among all members of society. Education and role models are important aspects of creating a positive educational environment for children. This directly ties into the three stages of mediation. Mapping. Collect data and information on the current state of education in the Palestinian territories. This includes examining the resources and infrastructure available, analyzing the challenges preventing access to quality education, and identifying the stakeholders involved. Legitimizing. Establish a clear set of rules and regulations for educational services in the Palestinian territories. This should include laws that protect all parties involved and ensure civilian safety. Bridging. Create a plan for implementing education in the Palestinian territories. This should include initiatives to increase funding for the school system, provide more resources for teachers, and create programs to help children catch up on missed education. It should also involve establishing accessible learning environments that are safe and secure for all children. It should also provide access to high-quality educational resources and create a culture of respect for education. Galtung's four visions of peace, positive peace, negative peace, creative peace, and instructional peace, all apply to this Palestinian educational dilemma. Positive peace involves creating a culture of respect and trust between the two sides. Negative peace is achieved when violence and hostility between the two sides cease. Creative peace consists in finding innovative solutions to conflicts and structural peace when the causes of the conflict are addressed. Galtung's guides to being an effective mediator include listening to both sides, understanding the contexts, being impartial, and being willing to negotiate. These guides can help find a resolution to this education dilemma that is fair to both sides and the underlying issues. Educating oneself on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, is essential to being an effective mediator. Understanding the history and context of the conflict and the perspectives of both sides is important. Knowing the various aspects of the conflict, such as the political, religious, economic, and cultural issues, will allow a mediator to better understand the dynamics at play and develop more effective solutions to the problem. Additionally, understanding the nuances of the conflict and the different sides' interests will enable a mediator to be better equipped to negotiate a beneficial resolution for all parties involved. By working together to alleviate the assault that impairs Palestinians' ability to access their education, we can create a better learning environment for all children. This will ensure access to the education they need, creating a more equitable society and fostering economic growth. It will also allow children to fulfill their potential and build a brighter future for themselves and their own communities. I want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you for taking the time to tune in to this episode of the Diplomacy and Discourse podcast. Your support means the world to me, and I'm truly honored that you chose to spend your time listening to our discussions. 
Your feedback is invaluable in helping us improve and tailor our content to your preferences. I welcome your thoughts, insights, and suggestions as they play a crucial role in shaping the direction of our podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, I appreciate your generosity in leaving a review on your preferred platform. Your reviews not only provide encouragement, but also help boost our visibility and reach a wider audience. Word of mouth is a powerful tool, and I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues who might find it engaging and insightful. Your recommendations can make a significant impact in growing our community. We're available on various platforms such as Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. I'm actively working on expanding our reach to platforms like Pandora, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to make it even more convenient for you to access our content. My commitment to you is to deliver fresh episodes every Monday filled with thought-provoking discussions and meaningful insights. Your continued support fuels our dedication to creating valuable content that resonates with you. Once again, thank you for being a part of our podcast journey. Your presence and engagement truly make a difference.